prayer, and then we're going to be in John chapter 6. Father, um, it's your thing that you're doing in this world, and it's just, um, it's amazing on a day like today that we can just see that, that you've got it all in your hands, the seasons, the nature, creation, this, this universe, it all is bigger than what we control. It's bigger than what we can even grasp, and, and so we want to turn our minds to you, and we don't want to come to you with just our lists and requests. We want to humbly listen and try and be shaped and changed and drawn closer to you. It says if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. So, Father, here we are this morning um, crying out desperately for you. In Christ's name, amen. John chapter 6. We're in a study of the book of John. And we begin in John chapter 6, and I'm just going to read a, a good portion for you this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you'll want to follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV, and we just begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. And it says this, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples and the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this uh, only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So he's challenging his thinking here. And I think that we realize that God does that a lot. Our thinking doesn't naturally rise to the level of God's planning and what God is really doing. And so... Um, God kind of plays devil's advocate with us at times to try and help us d discipline ourselves for what's called integrative thinking. Integrative thinking is um, there's A and B, black and white, and if it's not this, then it's this, and if it's not this, then it's that. And it's just very rudimentary thinking. Integrative thinking says um, there's other options out there other than just these two either or, black and white kind of things. And so you work towards the win-win, or you work towards the synthesis of these two things, right? And so Jesus is helping train his leadership crew here. He says, How, uh, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Think outside the box. God is a big God. And Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I mean, just think of the crowd size here. I mean, you're, you're not even at uh, Les Schwab Amphitheater. You're at something bigger. It's, it's bigger than the um, amphitheater. You're at something bigger than the amphitheater. And there's all these people, and you got these poor disciples that wander around, you know, kind of living off of other people giving them food. And, and, and Philip looks around, and he's like, man, we couldn't even, like, give them a little nugget. Man, if we had those, my kids are in school, and, you know, they, every time you go, they have the jars with the M&Ms, and you're, like, supposed to guess how many, and if you guess how many, you get something, you know, and the tr big trick there is it's always more than what you think it is. It's like 5,000 little M&Ms, but you think it's 100. You know, even if we had a bunch of those M&M jars, like, we still couldn't give an M&M to everybody. Like, there's just no way we can reach this many people. Jesus knows what he's going to do. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Integrative thinking. Sweet, isn't it? Like, here's something, right? 
but how far will this go among so many? And Jesus says, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Now, it's interesting, when Jesus taught, the way the Sermon on the Mount and these other kinds of sermons, the way he would have done that, would he, he would have gone to a big grassy area, and he would have sat down, and his immediate disciples would have kind of sat around them, and they had a way of, I mean, they didn't have microphones, and they didn't have things like this, and he would teach, and that would only reach so far with his voice. I mean, think of, think of 5,000 people just can't all hear um, Jesus without some kind of amplification. And what they would do is they would teach in pithy little statements and stories, and people would relay that to the people behind them. So he would teach to kind of his disciples up front, and then that would kind of be relayed backward. And so here you've on this hillside or a grassy place, everybody sits down, and Jesus is kind of teaching, and now he's going to try and take care of this problem after he's probably been talking to them about the food. And when they had, um, so Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed those um, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, not just like an M&M, um, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves uh, left over by those who had eaten. I mean, there's 12 basketfuls left over. This thing's just been multiplied out. Jesus is doing something miraculous. He's saying, I am an authority over the created order. I'm, I'm with God. I'm God's son. That means I'm not just a, a good teacher here. I'm above nature. I can create things out of nothing. I can multiply things against natural law. Um, I am an authority. And so he does this. Um, and after the people saw this miraculous sign, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I mean, people were pretty fired up, right? They're pretty excited, like, this is our guy. Um, this is the next political leader. This is the next guy we're going to rally around and, and be behind. Um, they think he's kind of the fulfillment of prophecy. If you can turn there quick enough, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it's written this. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 14. It says this, the nations you will dispossess, listen, um, the nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him, for this is what uh, you asked of the Lord your God or Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see his great fire anymore, or we will die. The, the people of Israel came out of Egypt. They get gathered. They're going to, like, hear God speak. And so they kind of purify themselves for several days to meet God, face, you know, kind of face-to-face -face at his mountain, this big fire and the thunder and, and the earthquake and all that. And so they get ready for this. The day comes, and they get out there, and it's such a scary deal that they're like, man, uh, we trust Moses. Moses, you go handle it. And then you just let us know what God wants to say because this is a scary deal coming this close to God. And so this is what the people ask for. And so Moses is saying, God will raise up for you a prophet. So here are these people, these, these Israelites, these Jewish people know the scriptures. And Jesus is doing these things and they're like, man, this is the prophet. Capital P, this is him. And they get all fired up and they're like, man, that we get to see this with our very own eyes is amazing. This is so cool. And Jesus withdraws. Now we... 
get a change of scene. So if we were doing like a drama, there'd be like a bunch of set people coming out and they'd be getting water out and different things like this and the lights would be changing. And so all of a sudden you get this set change, right? I'm sure you feel it. Um, and this is what it says. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three and, or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water. And they were terrified, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that he had gone away alone. So they begin to realize this Jesus that has power over the created order, the natural order, the, the things of this world, nature, like, man, this, what's this guy doing? I mean, that would have been kind of fun. Like, what's next, right? This is a really cool story. It's like watching a Harry Potter. I don't watch Harry Potter movies. But it'd be like, um, you know, I mean, the kind of things you get all excited about. Like, no one does this kind of stuff, you know, and you get all amped. And if you flip over to Matthew, we'll see kind of Matthew's rendering of the same scene. Jesus has fed the 5,000, and in uh, chapter 14, verse 22, he, he gives his rendition of the same story. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, it's really fascinating here, a little thing about faith. If I, uh, if I stood on this chair, it's, uh, it's supporting my weight, right? This is the thing that is holding me up. Now, if I filled this whole stage with, like, gnarly things, snakes and bugs or acid or, like, other gnarly things, um, does anything change? Well, acid doesn't work, does it? It would change the chair. Like, but the gnarly bugs and stuff, right? It doesn't affect at all the thing that's holding me up, does it? Does it? I mean, this thing is, is the same regardless of what's on the stage, what the stuff on the stage does is it affects my emotions. It affects my emotions. And the thing that was holding Peter up was his faith in Christ. It was, it was Christ honoring that faith and holding him up. And the waves and the wind has nothing to do with that. It just fills the stage. And Jesus doesn't change. And all of a sudden, Peter begins to get distracted by the circumstances. And his emotions change. And in changing his, emotion, his emotions, what happens? His faith wavers. 
the, the thing his faith was in didn't change at all. But his ability to trust it was affected by the circumstances. Okay, so hold on to that. Because um, we're going to learn a lot about faith this morning. So turn it back to John chapter 6. Jesus gets to the other side, and we'll try and condense this a little bit. And the people, when they had found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I watched a great documentary, Fog of War, one time by uh, Robert McNamara, and, and he was the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War. And he was always getting asked all these crazy questions. And he says, you know, you learn real quick that you don't answer the question that's asked. You answer the question that you wish you had been asked. So they showed this, like, archival footage. And reporters would be like, rah, rah, rah. And he would just come out of left field, like, answering this question. And, I mean, it just didn't make any sense from what they had said, you know. But it sounded great, and he was really confident with it. And just like, where, how did he, you know. And, and when you know the backstory, you kind of get it. Well, Jesus is the same way. Hey, Jesus, um, prophet, buddy, like, we're so excited about you. Like, we love you, man. When did you get here? I tell you the truth. You don't look for me because of this. You look for me because you want more food. It's like, <laughs> Whoa, like, how did you, I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> it says this, um, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And when they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now they're saying, okay, we're kind of thinking in terms of the prophet, capital P, Moses writing about this. Well, if you're kind of like that and you really want us to start thinking that you're like really big, okay, then do something like Moses did. Moses gave the people manna from heaven, man. They, they, they lived like not month to month, man. Those people had to live day to day. And like the manna was there every day and they had to just trust it, trust it, trust it. And, and Moses gave it to him. And Jesus says, no, uh, Moses didn't give it to him. God gave it to him through Moses. God did it. And I am that bread now that God is giving you. So he says to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so he goes on and says, man, you got to eat me. If you eat me, you won't go hungry. He starts drawing these analogies. Like the woman at the well, he was saying, if you're like looking for water, if you really knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for water that would just spring up to eternal life, that would never run out. And now he's doing the same thing with them, man. If you want bread, here's the real bread that'll, that'll like take you all the way and nourish you unto eternal life. This is the, the, the bread that'll last. And he's doing the same thing again that he did with this woman at the well, saying, I'm the one you want. I'm the thing that satisfies. I'm what God is providing for you. I'm what you've really been looking for. And I love this. The people respond, verse 41. They began to grumble. Isn't that what the Israelites did in the desert with Moses? 
And they began to grumble, and they said, I am, um, because he said, I am the bread that came from heaven, and their grumbling comes from this. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? It's really fascinating what's going on here is this. Jesus sent from God is this movement. He's, this, he's what God is doing in the world. This, this great reconciliation effort that God is doing. It's this movement. And because these people were following him and he was teaching them and they didn't have any food... He, he just needed to take care of them, and he's, he's, a good, he's a shepherd, he's a good Lord, he like cares about people. So he took care of their basic needs. Then he's out on the water, and Peter says, can I come to you? And Jesus says, yeah, this is great, because it's about faith. He says, that's how you participate in what I'm about. Come, come walk out on the water to me by faith and join in what I'm doing. Be a part of this. Come, come enter into this movement. Get it all the way to where this now dominates your thinking. This is your life. You're trusting in this. You're joining me where I'm at. Come do this. And Peter does, man. He struggles along the way, but he's trying to get it. Then we get to the people on the other side. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of done with you guys. I'm over it. Because this is now all you care about. You want me to feed your bellies and be your king, your next political leader, and take care of you, your felt needs, right? Your, your, your day-to-day realities, food. And I was just doing that just to help you out because I was all about this. And you're missing the movement. You're here to join me in this movement, and you think I'm here to take care of you. That my job is to serve your daily needs. And, and those daily needs are important, man. I just showed you they're important. I fed you, didn't I? But it's not the main thing. It's not the priority. The whole idea here is that you're going to join me in this movement of God, and you're going to follow me and trust me by faith. So as we read on, listen to how this kind of plays itself out, the last little bit of John 6. The people start grumbling, and and you know what? We always miss the movement of God through familiarity. We always miss the movements of God through familiarity. If I told you today that God was moving in uh, Belgium, or he was moving in Australia, or he was, God is moving in the city of Portland, you guys would be like, no way, really? Man, I want to hear about that. And then you're like, oh, if only was, I was in Portland. Or if only I could be in Belgium where God's moving. If I tell you this morning that God is moving in Bend. I read my blog uh, yesterday from when Antioch launched two and a half years ago. Just wild experience. I mean, just reading the day-to-day kind of things that were going on, right? Um, it's amazing to me what God has done in two and a half years through the people in this community. If I were to tell you God is moving in Bend, God is moving in Antioch, all of a sudden you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I don't know about that. These people looked at Jesus, and if they had been told 
that there was a great prophet come from the land of whatever, they'd have been like, no way, really? But Jesus, he's standing here. They know where he came from. They know his mommy and daddy. And he says, man, I've come down from God. Um, I am the movement of God. And these people are like, man, no way. <laughs> it's just way too familiar. We, we can't buy in. So they grumble. Eh, which God would have just made it seem cooler? Or like if it had been in Australia, it would have just been so much cooler. Um, so I'm not going to join that movement. Um, I'm just going to keep looking to fill my belly. But we miss God's movement through familiarity. And when we miss God's movement, we, we push it away through grumbling. Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. Stop grumbling among yourselves. And going down, it says this. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Okay, this is not kosher. Okay? It's not kosher. I mean, that, it would have been like, whoa, this is strange language, and it's not kosher, right? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and you know what Jesus is doing. He's talking about, I'm going to die for you, and you need to take that in and have part, part of me, right? And if you don't, you will die, he says, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Uh, we've crossed the line here, and it's got awkward. And Jesus shrugs his shoulders and, and basically says to his kind of main crew, he says, does this offend you also? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Jesus had known from the beginning which was going to betray him. And he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, the main guys. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, I, I, I'm kind of anti, like, all the againstness rhetoric. I mean, in my 20s, it was like, uh, I mean, it's still in me, right? But in my 20s, it was like everything I wanted to preach. It's like, how do I be against the thing in order to say what I'm for? You know what I mean? Like, you just against stuff. Um, it's easy sometimes to figure out what to be against. So this isn't one of those moments. Um, I think we really need to get this, though. Peter is saying, man, you're the movement of God. You're the Holy One of God. And you have the words that lead to eternal life. I don't want to go away and be anywhere else. Now, if I had to grab Peter at that moment and said, what's the mission statement of this organization? What are the values of this organization? Can you tell me what the five and ten year plan is, please? Um, 
That's not what he's doing. I mean, movements are different than institutions. And in America, we've taken business techniques, and we've said we can take churches and build great businesses. So we have to follow this model, and, and the people need to know what the mission is and what the values are and what the five-year plan and ten-year plan are, and people are, are down on what they're not up on. And, and if you ask anyone in the congregation if they should be able to tell it to you, and if they don't know it, then, then you really haven't done a good job of building this organization. And I think if you take any movement, even something that's not, you know, not this, but you just take like the civil rights movement, and, and you got people that are marching to Selma, Alabama, and, and you take someone out of line and say, what's the mission statement? Can you tell me what the values are? What's the five-year plan? They just, they, they're like, what? I mean, if you cut me, I bleed justice. That's why I'm here. I believe in this. I'm willing to put aside my own personal stuff to be here and to be caught up in this movement. I don't know all the little details. It doesn't matter. I'm here, and I'm going, and I'm with, and that's all that matters. Now, the idea of movements is, is simply that, that you're with. That it's not necessarily this business thing that's put together. The business model ultimately comes down to, eventually, that everyone is a customer. And if you're a customer, rule number one is what? You're always right. So if, if we're talking about a church, the customer is always right, what are you going to be coming to the church with? You're going to be coming with the most basic of, of human things, and that's felt needs. Felt needs. And the interesting thing about felt needs is that we feel them. These people felt it in their stomach. They were poor. They didn't have grocery store. They didn't have preservatives the way we do, canned goods. Man, food was a big deal. And their felt needs, they felt in their stomach. Your felt needs today, um, for most of you, you probably feel it in your shoulders. Right? I mean, I, that's where I'm feeling it, right? I feel it in my shoulders. Some of you might feel it in that migraine headache. Some of you might feel it in the tension down here and the irritability and how quickly you snap at your kids. Some of you might feel it almost in your eyes out here and the suspicion and, and all this that you project onto the world because, man, you just feel so threatened. But we feel felt needs. And it dominates our thinking. And so when we come to places, we're saying, deal with my felt needs because it's right here and it's immediate and I need alleviation. So you come to church and it's like, if you don't deal with that, why did I come? If you take Tylenol and doesn't get rid of your headache, you're going to throw it away. Why did I even bother? And so this business model that ultimately leads back to these felt needs, we build churches on trying to answer felt needs and keep people happy. And the funny thing about Jesus here, man, is he was a horrible church growth practitioner. I mean, he went from 5,000 down to like 12 in one day. If that happened in Bend, we'd say, man, that's, <laughs> that's bad church growth. You know, like, or, you know, you're not going to change the world by doing that. Yet Jesus didn't care about numbers. He cared about the purity of, of what it was about. 
He was guarding the movement and saying, the movement isn't about you. It's about you joining the movement through faith. Now, here's the difference, right? We have to move from expectations to faith. Our felt needs create expectations that we bring to church or that we bring to our small group or that we bring to God that he's going to serve us and meet our felt needs. And we have to move away from expectations to faith. Now the crazy thing about it is um, life is messy and God is mysterious. So this movement to join God and what he's doing by faith is a really really, really difficult thing. And we don't really talk about faith that much in that kind of a context. See, these people that left Jesus, did they disbelieve the existence of God? Well, they all did. They all believed in God, didn't they? So they believed in God, yet they walked away from what God was doing. They believed that he exists. They didn't believe in the movement. So we begin to learn something about faith, right? It's not just believing that God exists. It's believing that he's doing what he is actually doing, which is a lot more difficult than just believing that he exists. We inoculate Christians in this country by teaching them that faith is just about believing that God exists. James says, you know what? Even the devil believes that God exists, and it doesn't do him any good. And we teach people in America, look, here's how you come to be a follower of, of God, of Christ. You come and say, God, I believe you exist. And then you walk out, and then what? Your sins are forgiven. So nothing really matters. Say, oops, a couple times during your life. Um, let God know that you, you're sorry about some things. And that's really what it comes down to. But there's no sense where we talk about faith that... Faith is, is radically turning away from our own expectations and felt needs to doing the most difficult of all things and joining the movement of God through faith. Not only believing that God exists, but believing in what he is doing. It's difficult, isn't it? This is why I think the future of the church and of Christianity always hinges on high school kids and college students. I'm a big big believer in student ministries because I think they can be a lot more radical than um, the rest of us. I don't know about you, but when I got married and then I started having kids, uh, I got a lot more cautious. I, I got a lot more fearful. Something about students and being single that allows you, I mean, Jesus' disciples, a lot of them were in this category, man. They were able to be just sold out to the movement of God. And, and the more bogged down you get, the scarier it becomes. When you get taken off your tracks, like a, a roller coaster gets taken off its tracks, there's two things that happen. Uh, a greater potential of disaster, yet also a greater potential for God to work and move in your life to redirect you right? You're out of your routine, you're out of your rut, and that's scary because you can absolutely crash, yet it also puts you in God's hands to where he can mold you. And a lot of us are in situations where 
Um, we could grumble real easily because we want to be back on the track where we're being taken care of and where things are comfortable. And so we're going to grumble and go, man, the opportunity for me crashing right now is huge. And we're going to miss that the opportunity to also step out and walk on water by faith and to join this movement of God is now in a place where it hasn't been for 10, 20, 30 years. And if we can just muster up that little bit of faith, we can join God in a way that we've never been able to join God. And so we begin to learn something about faith. That sometimes when things are most destabilized, it becomes easiest for God to reconnect with us. Does that make sense? There's a difficult thing about this inoculation that goes on in American Christianity. We're a herd creature, so here's the peer pressure circle. And we're right in the middle of it. Now, this circle will either lead us one way away from God or another way seemingly toward God because the things we do culturally look more religious, right? And we can go this way because we, we chose a group of friends or a church that kind of take us in this religious direction, and we begin to feel like we're, we're moving in the right way with God because of the nearness of that. Does that make sense? But what we see with Peter is that faith is an individual exercise. The, the group, the crowd, can take you in good directions. The crowd cannot take you to God. Jesus coming down dying so that your faith can put you with God, that, that's the little gospel circle. But faith, when you really strip it down, is, is all about this individual moment of crisis where you say, as scary as it gets, I'm going to throw myself on God and grab hold of that because I trust that he's going to get me. But we can delude ourselves into thinking that just circumstantially, because we're in the right circle, that we're okay. That's the, the beauty of the word um, pop culture, the phrase pop culture, or popular they both come down to the word populace, you know, the, the, of the people. So pop culture means the culture that's just of the people, the prevailing, like, you know, five-year window. Not a generational thing, but like right here, right now, pop culture. Or popular, it's the things that the people really value at this moment in time. It's of the populace. And we can follow pop culture and what's popular in the religious kind of world, and we can go all over the place following the latest kind of Christian fad or religious fad and feel really good about ourselves because we're comfortable and we're with the majority, right? And that's a good thing, yet never realize that in the midst of that, we have a responsibility, you have a responsibility, I have a responsibility for my own faith relationship with God. Not just believing that God exists, but being willing to have faith in what God is doing, the movement of God. The interesting thing about faith, as I was reading this passage, is I began to realize faith always emerges out of a backdrop of fear. It always emerges out of a backdrop of fear or insecurities or anxiety. You look around and there's felt needs or there's things that you're scared of and you're like, man, I'm going to neglect all these things and put my primary focus on God. Well, then who's going to take care of me? then what's going to happen? What about this thing that's hanging out there? Or what about the job situation? Or what about my health? Or what about this person that's talking bad about me? 
or what about any of the number of things going on in your life, who's going to take care of those felt needs? And Jesus is saying, look, I, I got you. I got your felt needs. I got them, but you got to get something first. That I am the priority in your life, and you need to join the movement of God. And then let the rest follow. There's a Henry Blackaby quote where he says, um, don't ask God to bless what you're doing. Find out what God is blessing and do that. Does that make sense? Don't ask God to, to serve you and meet your felt needs. Don't ask your churches to serve you and, and meet your felt needs. Ask God, what are you blessing? Where is the Holy Spirit working right now and how can I be a part of it? That's my chief desire. It's, it's amazing to me with, these, with the inoculation thing going on. What inoculation means is you get a little bit of the, the disease, a little bit of the virus, and then when the full-blown thing comes, you miss it. And if you, you know, usually viruses are bad, but just pretend they're good for right now. So you get like a little bit of Jesus, kind of a little bit of, yeah, Jesus is cool, but now it's all about my felt needs. And then when the real full-blown virus comes, you're like, yeah, 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 I'm already there. And you miss the reality of what God is doing, and you go on just being a part of the Christian majority, which is never really necessarily a good thing. We inoculate people. Um, there's a thing, that there's a rule, there's a principle that's true of American churches, the 80-20 rule, Pareto principle or whatever, that 20% of this body is doing 80% of the work. I'd say it's 10%, I don't know, it depends on what we're talking about. But 20% of this body is doing 80% of the work. Now, if we're talking about a body, um, how good do you think that would be if 20% of my body was doing 80% of the work? I mean, one organ stops functioning, and, and that's it. And this body is supposed to be 100% of the people striving to, to be involved in what God is doing as the primary thing in their life. We've created church as a business where the paid staff, instead of Ephesians 4, are there to equip and, and to empower and unleash everyone else to do the work of ministry. It flips it around. Now the paid staff are here to do the work of ministry and to serve the people in the church. So now it's my job to come and, and be a part of this. It's their job to serve me. It's all about felt needs, and it's completely dysfunctional. And Jesus called it out. He says, I don't care if you leave. You 12, you going to leave? That's cool. You got it. You can stay. Jesus would have never let 20% do 80% of the work because it's dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional. We have to look at this and say, if you don't think God is doing something in Bend or can do something in Bend, and if you don't think God will or can do something through Antioch, if you don't see the potential of a movement here, of God, then why would you be here? Go find somewhere that God is working and be there. But if you think there's the potential of a movement here, then your job is to join that movement and be a functioning part of that body that serves and gives and prays and labors. Because this is bigger than any other felt needs going on in your life or in the neighbor sitting next to you. And in doing so, I guarantee you, we're going to lead such sacrificial lives that this stuff's going to start happening a heck of a lot better, right? Because when you get things to the battery turned like this way to this way, 
And, oh, you know, how come, like, this little Thomas um, battery-powered car isn't working? And you flip the battery around, all of a sudden it's working. Oh, we had it misaligned. It was supposed to point outwards, you know, it's positive on this end instead of inwards. Oh, we get it. So when we complete, completely flip this around, I guarantee you, God's the creator of this whole thing, that the body's going to start working. Eugene Peterson, uh, who I love to read and just would recommend any of his books to you, any of his books to you, um, said a, an amazing thing in this leadership magazine one time. He was talking to pastors, and he says, you know, what I've realized after 30 years of ministry is that it's not my job as a pastor, Eugene Peterson talking, to meet people's felt needs. It's to help show them what their real needs are. It's to help show them what their real needs are and show them how those get met through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not my job to serve you as a customer that's always right and it's about your comfort or your expectations. If, if I'm really doing my job right or Justin's doing his job right or Brandon's doing his job right, we're here to encourage and to nurture and say there's something bigger for your life than working to feed your belly. We feel felt needs. And the fact that life is messy and God is mysterious creates an emotional climate, which means that our faith is going to have to come out of a backdrop of fear. Are you afraid this morning? Welcome to the club. It's a part of life. And your fear, your fear is either what you have to step out of and feel naked, or it's the thing you'll, you'll use to clothe yourself and defend yourself. I mean, you following with me there? I mean, seriously. Your fear is what you have to come out of and be naked. Holy cow. If I'm not working for myself and looking out for number one and I'm, I'm grabbing onto God here, then who's going to take care of me? You have to come out of your fear and be naked in some sense in faith. Or your fear is the thing that you clothe yourself with and use it to grumble. Man, God can't ask me to do stuff like this. That's ridiculous. Ken, Antioch, another church. Man, they can't really ask me to, to, to be all in and to join what God's doing like that. Don't they realize what that would do to my life? And we grumble we get angry, and we insulate ourselves in our own little bubble of fear. Let me just conclude with this. There's a couple stories, one with a woman with a coin. She goes to the temple and takes the last coin that she has. I mean, this is all she's got, 100% of her, of her net worth. And she puts this tithe in at the temple. And there's another story of this woman that comes and takes this this perfume jar and anoints Jesus, and it's like a year's wages, right? And she lavishes, lavishes it on Christ. And, and people are like, man, what a waste. It's way too extravagant. And Jesus talks about both these people in the most glowing, glowing terms. And the reason he did, I think, is simply this. It's not that what they did was miraculous. It's that what they did was difficult. They were willing to take all that they had and throw it on Christ and, and not worry about what was going to happen. Kind of a reckless faith. And what they did was so difficult 
to bridge this thing that Jesus finally said, man, those people walked on water. What they did wasn't miraculous. What they did was so difficult, but they got it. They're supposed to join me and put me first and not worry about the rest of it. That's true faith. And it emerges out of the backdrop of fear. And it's never easy. And those felt needs are going to be screaming out at you and saying, why would you do this? And they're going to want to make you grumble. Yet Jesus honored and held up and said, this is the model. When people were willing to do things that were so radically difficult, but put them squarely in God's will with what God was doing in this world, the movement of Christ. Does that make sense this morning? It doesn't matter what you need. Um, it could be money. If you're single, you might feel like you need a spouse. Uh, if you're married, you might feel like you need a child. It might be your health. It might be reprieve from what people are saying about you. Whatever it is you need. What you need more than anything this morning in the midst of all those emotions is to keep your eye on Jesus Christ. Don't let fear cause you to waver in your faith. Don't doubt God because of the felt reality of emotions. The very thing we're supposed to do is move outside of that, whatever is difficult, and just throw ourselves on Christ. It's the best we can do. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do not want to be caught up in pop culture. We don't want to just be led by the masses and just follow because it's safe or it's comfortable. It's what everyone else is doing or we're able to hide there. Father, we do want to stand right before you and somehow have the faith to lay hold of you. We just pray that you would give us that faith. Our faith is weak. It's not strong. And we go through periods of doubt that's real and we know that you know that. So, Father, in the midst of that, would you just please strengthen us? Would you grow our faith? Would you just um, blow away clouds that would make us doubt? Would you make yourself real to us so that we could just do the unthinkable and throw ourselves, jump onto you, trust you, put our faith in you? May we want, more than anything else in this world, not to just have a great job, or a great little home, or a great little network of friends, or a great little anything that's just wonderful and comfortable. May we want more than anything else in this world to join you in what you're doing in our times where we live and be a part of the movement of the Spirit. Let us not be just pushed away by familiarity. Let us not hide behind walls, Father. Um, just shine a light and show us that the, the real issue is our faith and that it's not what it always should be. Just give us the ability to grow that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.